All right, well, we're going to jump back into our study. We're going to settle back into Acts chapter 17 today. I want to spend a little more time with the Apostle Paul in Athens. Um, I, I sort of did a, a bit of a, a rough run over, over some elements of his, his appearance there before the philosophers there in Athens, and I want to put a little more structure, a little more clarity of thought around that whole encounter. It certainly is representative of a significant record that Luke um, uh, records for us there in Acts. Uh, anytime you see the, these sections that Luke puts down recording some speech, some sermon, some significant point of engagement, it's always worthy of note because you compare that to other portions of Acts where he's just sort of running through things pretty at a pretty rapid pace with you know, minimal detail, enough to kind of give you a sense of it, and then he'll stop and pause and he'll elucidate more broadly or more deeply on a particular matter or a particular location or a particular encounter. And this is certainly one of those. In fact, it represents really the last, um, last most lengthy uh, speech or presentation that the Apostle Paul gives. Um, not not too much longer, but but really the longest. I mean, there's some a few others that will come. He'll he'll address the elder, the Ephesian elders, in his farewell address to them on his third missionary journey, and then he has several different encounters when he's brought before Felix and brought before Festus and brought before King Agrippa, um, these sort of these mock trials, these, these sort of silly trials where he has been accused of, of, uh, of bringing a, a, a Gentile into the temple court there at the end of Acts right before he goes to Rome. So there's a few other uh, times where he's sort of speaking at some relative length, but this is really longer than any of those. So it's worthy of our attention just by virtue of the volume that it's given in Luke, excuse me, in Acts by Luke. But really, the thing that I think uh, stands out in, in my mind, and I think in, in many people's minds who just kind of look at it objectively and have studied it over the years, is that this really gives us a great picture of what gospel witness, or maybe even what apologetics uh, should look like, what biblical Christian worldview type apologetics might look like when you're facing... Uh, questions or inquiry or possibly even argumentation from a unbelieving world and from a pagan type world, from an atheistic type world, um, from a, a community of people that has a worldview that's vastly different than your own. And so the Apostle Paul, in this encounter, and given the nature of, uh, of the environment that he was in, gives us this great picture of that. And really, I think... Um, puts a fine point on some key characteristics of that kind of encounter and, and, and sort of by, by contrast or what, what's, you know, what he does, you just imply what the, the, the converse of that, that action would be, he, it sort of highlights for us some potential pitfalls or weaknesses that we could succumb to that we need to be mindful of. And so I just want to spend a little more time uh, looking at this section in Acts chapter 17 Really, not so much to um, to study the, the 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 text of Scripture exegetically, but to just look at how the Apostle Paul conducts himself and some of the things that he emphasizes as he's addressing uh, the people there in Athens, and, and namely those gathered there uh, at the Areopagus, the, these uh, these these thinkers and these these philosophers that are gathered there. 
Um, just to kind of set this in its context, you're, you're looking at this point where uh, it's about 18 to 20 years after the Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Um, so you're talking about a, a lengthy period of time where, where his understanding of the gospel and all of its implications, or maybe another way to look at it is his, his, the, the shaping of his worldview from a Christian, a post-resurrection, gospel-centric perspective has had plenty of time to be shaped by Christ, by the, the witness of the Spirit, and by his, his actual interactions in taking the gospel uh, under the power of the Spirit uh, to the Gentiles in, in various places uh, that he traveled. So he, th- this is at a point where um, his understanding of a Christian worldview has had plenty of time to really develop. That's kind of the point to, to think about when you think about how much time has passed since his conversion. Uh, he's traveled thousands of miles. He's gone to many different cities taking the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. Uh, he's faced ridicule and rejection by his own countrymen. The Jews, in, in large measure, had rejected him and ridiculed him, had run him out of various towns, had followed him to towns to actually stir the people up, not in their own town, but in the next town that he went to. They were so... They had such animus against him. He faced that kind of ridicule and rejection from his own people. Um, he had been beaten. He had been stoned. Uh, he had been, um, not, not, not yet, but he, had been, but he had faced all kinds of persecution and pain, in other words. Uh, just, just basically for his faithful witness of the gospel. So this is a, this is a man who has arrived at this point, and he has, he has experienced a lot of, of what he would experience as God's chosen uh, apostle to the Gentiles in the way of rejection, in the way of, of doctrinal formation, in the way of experiencing uh, the, the, the difficulty and the trial of that, in laboring, in travel, uh, facing illness, facing even the rejection of traveling companions and the, and the heartbreak over his separation from Barnabas. But he also saw men and women, Jew and Gentile, come to faith in Christ. He saw the effectiveness of the gospel and its power to save. And he saw God use uh, the witness of the gospel to take people who were either Jews or God-fearing Gentiles or even out-and-out pagans who had no concept of a monotheistic worldview. In that same gospel effectively God using that to open their eyes to their need of a Savior and them coming to faith in Christ and churches being established and leaders in those churches being established. So he's at this point where he's, he, this is a, this is a, a mature uh, point in time in terms of the, the formation of gospel witness and mission inter, and enterprise for the Apostle Paul. He experienced the faithful provision of the Lord in and through it all. So you're talking about a man who was very well established as a witness to the gospel to the Gentiles in, in all manner of respect in terms of what he endured, what he had grown to understand, what he had witnessed, how he had seen the Lord provide, how that had deepened his own faith and strengthened him personally. And now he finds himself by providence here in Athens alone. You, you might recall he... He makes his way to Athens. He separates from uh, Timothy and Silas, and and he finds himself in Athens by himself here initially. 
And at this time, we see that, that he finds himself in this, this sort of this fountainhead of, of learning and of thinking and of art. Um, this is the place where uh, the city that produced some of the greatest thinkers and writers and artists and historians um, of all antiquity. I mean, this was Athens. This was ground zero for that. Uh, just a little quote here from a, a historical source. Herodotus, the father of history, lived in Athens and wrote in Athens. Socrates, the father of philosophy, taught in the marketplace in Athens. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, practiced there. <clears throat> the sculptor Phidias created his great works for the Parthenon uh, on the Acropolis and the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. Democritus formulated his atomic theory of the universe in Athens. Um, Asicles and Euripides and Aristophanes and Sophocles wrote their famous plays there. Plato would found his academy outside the walls of Athens, and later Aristotle uh, would found his academy in the city center. So you start thinking about all these names of, of, of ancient, the ancient world who represented you know, thinking and philosophy, philosophical thought, and medicine, and art, and history... Athens. And, and there, there was Paul. And what's fascinating about this and the way that Luke records this is that he is not enamored by being there in that center of thinking and knowledge and, and art and, and really Western civilization, sort of the birthplace of Western civilization. He's not enamored by being there in any way. Um, and and he's certainly not intimidated by the intellectual climate that he finds himself in. In fact, what we see in verse 16 of chapter 17, that he's not, he's not enamored and he's not intimidated, he's actually provoked. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We mentioned this a, a couple of weeks ago. You have these references from other sources in, in history uh, Petronius, a first century Roman courtier in the house of Emperor Nero, said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. You have uh, Pausanias, a well-known Greek geographer from the second century, said there were more images in Athens than all the rest of Greece combined. This was a man that had traveled all over that part of the world, so he knew the landscape. And Xenophanon, an ancient Greek philosopher and historian and soldier and student of Socrates, said that the city was an altar and a votive offering to the gods. So when it says that he was provoked because of all the gods, there, it, it was, this place was covered in idols. Uh, and a, a whole range of idols. The pantheon of idols that you could possibly imagine, but also a lot of, of um, types of idols that would provoke his his conservative Jewish sensibilities. There was a lot of sensual type idols and, and symbols and that kind of thing that would be uh, particularly uh, provocative. But his heart was really kind of broken over this. Um, and so he's not in this, this place and he's not thinking, uh, I, you know, all, these, all these great people have come from here and you've got all these you know, wise people or all these intelligent people or or, man, I'm certainly at ground zero for those that would be enemies of the gospel. That's not the disposition of the Apostle Paul, even though he finds himself there separated from his traveling companions and he's alone. And another kind of way to see this, John MacArthur wrote, Paul viewed Athens as a city of lost humanity, 
all doomed to a Christless eternity because of rampant pagan idolatry. So just clarity about what he is seeing there. And so, what does Paul do? Well, verse 17, he does what Paul does. It says, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That's what he did. He went straight at gospel witness in that environment. So there was a a, a boldness and a confidence in the truth of Scripture and in the truth of the gospel that compelled him to respond in that way. And then uh, he, we, we note in the passage, in the text here, as he was reasoning in the marketplace and having these conversations with people, in verse 18, he encounters the great thinkers of the city, the great philosophers, uh, the great intellectuals, those who have lofty wisdom and depth of understanding that, that really places them in their minds above the hoi polloi, you know, above the common man, the common thinkers of the day. Uh, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that he encounters. In fact, you can kind of get a sense of their view of themselves by virtue of the question that they ask, what does this babbler wish to say? The interesting thing, this is a little bit of, uh, of uh, I don't know if, if Luke is, is using this as an intentional irony or, or maybe it's a little bit of a kind of a truthful and yet uh, subtle jab. But it's interesting that you see the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as they're encountering Paul and his gospel and they're saying, what does this babbler wish to say? Um, This is the picture of of like a bird that pecks at at seed and and then drops it. And it's like this idea of just picking up different different ideas and just dropping them about. It's, it's, it's nothing, in other words, it's, it's, a, it's an insult to, to someone who doesn't have a, a, a refined and well-developed philosophical viewpoint of life and reality and purpose and meaning. It's a real insult, uh, this kind of statement. The interesting note here is that, is that uh, Luke, in verse 21, says, Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they're asking this question, and by virtue of the question, they're sort of leveling this insult, and yet Luke characterizes them as that that's all that they were about, was hearing and talking about and thinking something new. They were just they were enamored by some new idea, some new philosophy, some new twist on an old philosophy, whatever it might be. And so there Paul is with these enlightened ones. And these Epicureans and the the Stoic philosophers, just to kind of give you a little bit of a a picture of who these folks were, uh, these were basically the materialists and the rationalists of the day. Um, The Epicureans, they were the followers of Epicurus. And this is a man who taught that the highest good was serene enjoyment or absolute peace. Uh, The term uh, ataxia. is the the Greek term for this peace. Uh, This is a quote from Epicurus in one of his letters. He says, Wherefore we call pleasure the alpha and omega of a blessed life. Pleasure is our first and kindred good. It is the starting point of every choice and of every aversion. And to it we come back inasmuch as we make feeling the rule by which to judge every good thing. Let me read a few more uh, sort of points about 
this, this particular view in this particular day and time. Epicurus's goal was to teach people to relax and enjoy life without worrying so much. In other words, this, this peace, this peace and this satisfaction in life would come by enjoying the things of life. Um, one of the ways he would seek to do this, and really his first step, was to remove the idea of the gods from the psyche of his followers. So in other words, the Epicureans, they, they were pantheistic. They had a belief in sort of, the, in sort of this, this cultural adoption or acceptance of the pantheon of gods, but, but this philosophical system, the first, play, the first step to take is to sort of remove your, your thinking, like move that to the very far reaches of your thinking. It's, you know, a belief in or any implications of a belief in the gods or what they do or what they're up to, you should remove that far from your thinking because that has, has the tendency to rob you of satisfaction in life. So they, the gods did exist, but he, he would argue that they lived so far away from the affairs of man and that they didn't even interfere with humanity. In fact, they weren't even aware of humanity would be his argument about the gods. And he says, with the removal of the fear of the gods came two advantages for the Epicureans. First, there is no judgment after death. No judgment after death. That's, that's one way to avoid you know, the, the pangs of guilt and shame over sin or something like that, right? You, you, you remove that as, a, as a, this overhanging sense of dread that's out there in front of you all the time. So he said, you know, so they, he would teach that death shouldn't be feared. And then everything is material. So whatever soul there is, it is connected to the physical body and ceases to exist upon death. So the idea of eat, drink, and be merry is kind of, you know, a cliched way to kind of think about Epicureans. Now, Epicureanism, it does get characterized in a bit of an extreme way. Because the true sense of Epicureanism, particularly in this day and time, was not oriented toward gluttony and toward you know, complete abandonment to your physical passions. It was all about balance, but your, but your, your physical passions, so satiating, so if you're, it's, it's, not, it's not peaceful to be hungry, so eat enough to be filled. But if you eat too much, then your stomach will hurt, or you'll get sick, so don't do that, just eat enough. So it was, but it was all about satiating these material, physical needs and, and, and achieving a, a, a relative peace as a result of that. And of course, removing the gods so that you could pursue that however you saw fit was an important part of it. So fulfillment, according to the Epicureans, was that if we aren't working for the favor of the gods in this life or the next, uh, we can live to the full in this time. So the more balanced uh, we live, the, the, the better we will uh, satisfy those desires. An absolute peace meant being comfortably fed, but not overfed. Desserts and fine food are okay if they are rare enough to be appreciated, but not so common as to be expected or desired. Too much education is distressing because it awakens a desire to understand things that are not understandable. Feelings... This is another key component. Feelings, not logic, most often reveal the truth about a situation. So in true Epicureanism, the best life is characterized by sufficient food, a comfortable dwelling, peaceful relationships, 
and good friends. And then you die. That's it. Okay? The Stoics, on the other hand, would represent the more rational spectrum. They, uh, they followed uh, a philosopher named Zeno. Um, the Stoics get their name from the place where he taught, this, this porch or this portico called a stoa. And uh, they stressed a living, a living according to nature or, or what nature would reveal. Um, Stoicism teaches a materialism that is oriented toward creation being made of material stuff. And the, and, and the idea is to understand through reason how to interpret the material stuff of the world. And that you have the capacity by your reason, they would call it the logos. Sound familiar from John, right? This, is this, this was the, the ultimate uh, place of reason. And the final stage, for example, of Stoicism would be to be completely ruled by the logos, by reason, completely ruled by it. So that your decisions are always logical and you're never so impassioned that you can't think things through. So you can kind of see how there would be, they're both, there's, they're, both of these philosophies or schools of thought are, are they're materialistic in nature. You understand, right? There's, it's both two different forms of materialism. Uh, in other words, the, the stuff of this life is really all that there is. One school would orient itself toward uh, the more um, emotional, material gratification that you can achieve in life. And one would orient itself more toward the intellectual or rational satisfaction you can gain by achieving a certain level of logical capacity and ability to reason and think your way through and be detached from emotion so that you can really think your way toward the right decision, the logical conclusion. This really is, when you think about those two sort of schools of thought, this really is a very good representation of sort of the, the, the worldview spectrum that we encounter even today. And obviously there's, you know, there's particularities you know, all, all over the place on this spectrum. But if you just think about it, you've got, you've got one sort of school of thought that's oriented toward this subjective, experience-based truth that's rooted in personal satisfaction. And so, you know, that could, be, that could take the shape of, well, you know, what's true for you might be true for me, but, you know, my experience or my interest or what appeals to me and what I believe to be true is different. And so I pursue that because, really, we're all, we're all oriented toward needing to pursue truth as we see it and as we want to experience it and as we feel it, 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 it's leading us to that kind of thing. So it's a subjective experience-based idea of truth, and it's really rooted in personal satisfaction. The other one is truth acquired through the objective power of reason. So they're both human-centered, in other words. They're, just, they're both humanistic in their orientation. They're just coming at it from a little bit of a different angle. They both put man at the center of the universe, and this is the thinking that Paul is confronting in his time with them in Athens at the Areopagus. John Calvin describes this city this way in light of these philosophical viewpoints. He says, The city which was the mansion house of wisdom, the fountain of all arts, the mother of humanity, did exceed all others in blindness and madness. So the Apostle Paul, 
is walking into a situation in which you've got these philosophers who have what they believe are very developed, very well thought out, and in some ways very satisfying systems or worldviews or ways of understanding reality and everything else. And he's confronting that because he sees them as full of folly. And more, more sadly, on a collision course with eternal judgment by virtue of their rejection of the Savior. And so, again, he is moved to this, this gospel witness. So as we look at, at this, this encounter, this, this, this communication that Paul gives there at the Areopagus, I just want to draw out a few things for us to think about when it comes to um, how we encounter and, and communicate and engage an unbelieving world. And individuals who are unbelievers who probably uh, very well would fit into one of these, some spectrum of these philosophical schools. I mean, you could kind of just, if you just kind of generalized a little bit, you could probably uh, fit them in to some degree or another into one of these schools of thought. The first thing I would kind of point out here uh, is that, is to note that the Apostle Paul does not succumb to what are two predominant assumptions that are often um, ascribed to when Christians encounter unbelievers, particularly those of a, of a you know, God-denying or man-centered, atheistic kind of, or agnostic at minimum kind of, of belief system. It, these two assumptions are these. One is the assumption that there is neutrality in these conversations. This is, this is a myth. Uh, Van Til would call it the, the the principle of pretended neutrality. The Apostle Paul, you'll note in his encounter with them, is not thinking that this is neutral ground at all. In other words, his objective in his communication with them is to not try to seek out some neutral place that we can both sort of come together and find common ground and common agreement and then reason our way back and forth between our particular worldviews and maybe my power of persuasion and the strength of my arguments might win him over to my side. That's not how he viewed it at all. Just to take this a, a bit further, if we understand, as Paul understood, knowing how he started his communication with the Creator, if we understand that God is the Creator of the world and that nothing at all falls outside the realm of His Lordship, then that means that Everything, or excuse me, that means that nothing, I should say, not even facts or knowledge, is neutral. If, if he is God over everything, then nothing, including facts, including knowledge, including philosophical dispositions, are neutral. All things are either in submission to the Lordship of Christ, or they are hostile to the Lordship of Christ. And so in our, in, 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 you'll, you can see this over and over again if you watch any kind of YouTube debates or you even think about some of our own tendencies in the way that we think about this. There, there, is this, there is this setting aside of what we know to be clearly, biblically true, that God is the creator of all things and thereby is the Lord of all things. And there is no sort of neutral ground of rational thinking that is separate from that. 
There's either submission to who God is, and more particularly who God is in Christ, or there's hostility to that. So the Apostle Paul knew this. Cornelius Van Til said that if we must determine the foundations of the authority, we no longer accept authority on authority. In other words, if we're assuming that there's some sphere of authority that's somehow outside the ultimate authority of God, and we're thinking that if we can establish that ground of authority with this person who is an absolute Christ denier, but yet we can establish some common ground of authority, then we can you know, argue from that place of authority, then there really is no authority that we're arguing from. It's, it's a myth. It sort of evaporates. So the Apostle Paul did not succumb to that assumption, but he also didn't uh, succumb to the assumption of any kind of human autonomy, that somehow man has the ability to reason coherently and clearly in his fallen nature apart from Christ, apart from being one of God's creatures. The Apostle Paul understood, and we should understand, that Man's reason, his faculties for reasoning, have been corrupted by the fall. That man does not approach his worldview from the standpoint of some autonomous posture of rational thinking. And yet, over and over again, that's, what, that's the arguments that are put forward by those in, in, particularly those in the materialistic sort of evolutionary school of thought, those that would say, you know, science has basically eliminated the need for God. I mean, that's kind of the, the gist of the argument. They're, they're just like the Stoics in that they have adopted this idea that, that my reasoning faculties, my ability to ascertain in my own rational capabilities that have developed over millennia of time through evolutionary processes, which, figure that one out, but those faculties are so developed that everything, everything that is to be known or understood or believed to be true has to be presented to me in such a way that my sophisticated and highly developed reasoning faculties will then conclude that's true and that's right. It elevates the, the, the rational faculties of fallen man to the position of the rational faculties of God who is above man is what it does. And it happens over and over again. And so oftentimes, when you're getting into these conversations with people who are unbelievers, we can't fall to the, the, the trap of believing that somehow they're arguing from a position of true autonomy, when in fact they're not. It's just really them putting forward their own opinion about what they're observing in the world or in the universe or what their experience is. It's their own interpretation of things is what's taking place. Van Til again writes, Sin will reveal itself in the field of knowledge and the fact that man makes himself the ultimate court of appeal in the matter of all interpretation. He will refuse to recognize God's authority. We've already, already illustrated the sinful person's attitude by the narrative of Adam and Eve. Man has declared his autonomy as over and against God. And that's what the Apostle Paul was encountering at the Areopagus in Athens. He confronts this, he stands in the midst of them, and he confronts them by, first of all, identifying their inadequate understanding of God. 
That's where he begins. He goes right after their idolatry, this unknown God, and then he begins to proclaim, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Your understanding of God, which if it's, if it's coming from a purely rationalistic sense of autonomy, it's you're, the, you're God. So you, you, we have to understand that we might be communicating with people who, in the truest sense, they have elevated themselves to the position of God. And we need to recognize that, that we, can't, we can't reason them off of that pedestal. They're going to have to be completely like broken off of it with the gospel. And the Apostle Paul goes right at it because he's saying, look, your assumptions about who God is are just completely erroneous and false. And he just begins to declare the God who made the world and everything else is both Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man, nor has he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Welcome to the Areopagus, Paul. Welcome to the intellectual elite. Let's have a conversation. And that's where he starts. Because he's not, he's not sucked in by these assumptions, these, these false mythical assumptions about there being some kind of neutral ground that we need to try to find in our, in our conversation. Now, I want to make a clear point here. And I read some commentaries about this that would all kind of agree with this. When you compare this and Paul's interaction here in Athens to, for example, Romans 1, which is a really good sort of um, doctrinal and theological treatise on what's happening here where, you know, even though God has revealed himself in creation, man has denied that and he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and then he begins to serve and worship the the created things as opposed to the creator. That's sort of the Apostle Paul presenting to believers a theological understanding or a doctrinal understanding of what's taking place. But his actual engagement here is is more characterized by not... uh, um, abrasive harshness, but by engagement. And we are called, as you know from 1 Peter, we're supposed to communicate our our understanding of the gospel and and the truth, but we're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect, right? We're not supposed to be acoustic in our communication. The key to make the differentiating point, though, is that the nature of, of truth, when it's placed into this kind of thinking or this kind of worldview, the, the, the message itself can be assaulting in nature. It just needs to be delivered out of vessels who recognize that there but for the grace of God go I. So that should temper our tone and our, our patient communication and all that. But it should, not, it should not alter the clarity with which we are conveying what is true and what is right. Nor should it uh, cause us to feel like we need to uh, set aside what is actually objectively true about this particular person, about this particular's worldview, and about what this particular encounter, and, and thereby uh, start standing in the stream of our own cleverness and our own ability to kind of com- communicate and, 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 and woo and appeal. That's a very dangerous and subtle temptation that we've got to be careful about. And I, just, I love the way that this, this passage points that up in the Apostle Paul he just, he's, he's all about trying to, to communicate with them. And, of course, he references the, the I notice this altar to your unknown God. And, and so he's, he's establishing a sense of familiarity with their environment and their, 
they're idols, but he goes right at it with what is actually true about the, the true God, the true creator God. And he's not succumbing to these ideas of, of uh, human autonomy or of some kind of neutrality that we can establish and then they're, they're, they're try to argue for some kind of common agreement. The next thing I would draw your attention to is that Paul presupposes the truth of Scripture and the Christian worldview. Like he's just assuming that as truth. He, in other words, he's not assuming or presupposing that, like I said, there's this, there's this sphere of argumentation that I've got to step into and I've got to make my case for the truth and reliability of the Christian worldview. He just presupposes it. He just assumes it to be true. Because it is. Why on earth, if we're talking about the Creator who has revealed Himself through His Word and most vividly through His Son and has revealed that to us through His Spirit by His grace, why on earth would we set that aside and try to argue from any other vantage point? Why would we not have conversations with people where we are just assuming that what is, is. That what is absolutely and transcendently true is absolutely and transcendently true. I'm, I don't need to set about to prove what is to you. I assume it. I presuppose it. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. We should not, even for a second, concede that reality might be any other way than it actually is. I watched a. Are you guys familiar with John Lennox? Has anybody ever heard or John Lennox speak? Or John Lennox, I would I would commend him to you. Um, he's got a lot of YouTube uh, videos out there, um, uh, videos of him in various environments, debates, and forums, and lectures, and that kind of thing. But John Lennox is a um, he's a genius mathematician. He's a professor of mathematics and philosophy of science at Oxford graduate of Cambridge, um, uh, you, know, was, you know, ran in some of the same circles as people like um, um, uh, Stephen Hawking. Um, he, sat, he sat and listened to some lectures by C.S. Lewis when he was at Cambridge. I mean, he's, he's an older gentleman, and, and so he's got a lot of kind of breadth of experience and knowledge. Brilliant man. The thing that is so fascinating about him, aside from his um, his how how well-read he is and how brilliant he is, is the fact that you see the grace of Christ all over him when he communicates. You see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in the way that he interacts with people uh, in in even hostile sort of environments, if you will. And what what I came across one uh, video that just, this one part of it just struck me. It it was probably one of the best examples of this. I mean, he's got this grandfatherly temperament that just draws you in. I mean, you feel like he's wise, but he's also caring and gracious, and yet he's brilliant, and he's well-read, and just, he doesn't come across as pompous or arrogant. He's just a, 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 he has a great demeanor uh, to go along with his his depth of understanding and knowledge. Um, But He's at, he's at uh, Harvard Medical School, and he's speaking at this forum of medical students, a huge, uh, a huge um, lecture hall with medical students at Harvard Medical School, along with other doctors and professors of the school. So he presents this lecture, and the, the topic of the lecture is, I don't, know the, I don't remember the specific title, but it was, uh, it was focused on 
uh, human suffering and the existence of God. So you have these these, uh, students who are trained to be medical doctors and who are going into the field that is oriented toward trying to alleviate physical pain and suffering. And it has philosophical implications to it as well. There's issues of bedside manner and how you encourage, how the doctor becomes a bit of a counselor. And so this is part of the, a forum that they're engaged in. And so he presents this lecture, and it's very, very good, very compelling. But then he does this Q&A session at the end where he's just sitting up on the stage with this one moderator who I, I don't recall specifically from the video, but I believe he must be a, a professor there. Really gracious and, and, and good guy seemed like to, you know, in terms of how he conducted the, the uh, Q&A session. It wasn't hostile at all. Um, but, but some very pointed questions were asked about the existence of God, the nature of suffering, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, of course, he handled them uh, very astutely. But, but after this entire lecture and then this Q&A session, and then he, ha- I mean, he literally had all those students just like right here. You could tell that whether or not they believed in what he believed in, they liked him. They, they were compelled by him as a man. Even so far as to say that this, uh, this moderator, toward the end of his Q&A session, said this. He said, I-, I can't help but notice that you seem so sure of what you believe in. How, how do you have such certainty? And the question was not how that question has often been asked in other forums. Like, how can you be so sure? This was a man who was moved by what he witnessed in the grace and demeanor of this Christian genius. And he, and he said, how, how, it's almost like, how, what can I do? How, help me understand. I mean, you could almost sense that there's this internal appeal that he wants to know more. He wants to understand more. But his question was, how, 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 do, you, how do you know this so certainly and so assuredly? Um, it was just a great moment, but it testifies to this fact that the entire time, both in his lecture and in his Q&A, he was constantly presupposing the, the transcendent truth of the Christian worldview. He never assumed anything otherwise. And there he is at this center of, I mean, this you know, kind of like a pseudo-Athens of our day, right? He's in, at Harvard University, right? Medical students. And he assumed, just like Paul did in Athens, the truthfulness, the transcendent rightness of the biblical Christian worldview. Never gave up that ground. And yet did it with grace and kindness and generosity and had people just going, what, what is this? What is this? And that's what Peter was talking about when he's saying, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. When people ask, in other words, there's going to be something about you that's going to be compelling. It's going to make people go, what is that? It was almost like this snapshot of that passage of Scripture that happened during this live forum. And that's, that's how that we have to, to balance our approach with this, that we stand on transcendent, revealed truth. We know what we know to be true because it's been revealed to us unequivocally. And so we stand in that. What is, is, and yet we do it with grace and kindness and compassion for the souls of men and women. And that's what Paul did here. Well, finally, no, actually, i got two more real quick. Note that Paul argues, this is a, this is a term that's taken from um, presuppositional apologetics and Cornelius Van Til's sort of school of thought as it relates to apologetics, but 
Note that Paul argues transcendentally. He argues from a transcendency perspective. In other words, he, he, his argument is based upon his, his assumption of the Christian worldview to be true. But not only that, that the contrary to the Christian, Christian, Christian worldview is impossible. In other words, any other worldview cannot stand up on its own. It has to borrow from the Christian worldview to make its own arguments. That's what we mean by arguing transcendentally. No other worldview can account for things like the laws of logic. No no other worldview can account by why most human beings have an instinctive sense of morality and right and wrong. Even those who would deny any kind of belief in a Um, an objective morality. In other words, there is something about... So in other words, uh, something like the the Holocaust in World War II, uh, you know, that was just something that was, you know, it it was bad for those people, but I can't say that it was necessarily bad from an objective standpoint because I don't believe in objective morality. Even those people that might go to that length to try to be sort of quote-unquote logically consistent, they can't live their lives that way. In fact, you check into their lives, and I guarantee you they have expressed frustration over being offended by someone. And you have to ask them, why why are you offended? What is an offense? What's the basis of you being offended? In other words, you you can't adopt a countervailing worldview to the Christian worldview, which is perfectly logically coherent, flowing from a rational, eternal God, without borrowing from it. You can't argue from that vantage point. It falls apart, particularly in the areas of, of uh, morality. You can't argue from it. And the Apostle Paul understood that. So these people that were having this disposition of either satisfaction through the senses, through an emotional sort of gratification of your senses, through eating and drinking and friendships, and there's nothing, you know, the gods are far away, so don't have any fear of that. Don't bring a lack of peacefulness into your life by some belief in the gods. And, and, and you'll, you'll understand what is true and right through the senses of your emotion. Or those that would say, you know, I want there's to, this, there's this objective logos, this standard of, of, of logic or reason that's out there, and I'm going to reason my way into what is true and what is right. That even in the midst of all of that, the Apostle Paul doesn't, doesn't grant that ground by saying that those are reasonable places to argue. In other words, he comes at it from the standpoint of, the Christian worldview is the only thing that is, is a sustainable way to view the world. He goes to this point toward the end when he gets to the gospel presentation. He talks about how God is the creator of man and that God has, uh, he sets the boundaries of man. Um, but then he gets to the, the fact that we are all God's offspring. And he finally says that um, the times of ignorance God overlooked, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he gets to a point where he says, it is, it is appointed unto man once to die. Everybody must face an eternal judge, and you know it. That you are created in the image of God is the assumption, and you know that there is eternity in your heart and that you will face a judge. Well, let me explain this to you, how this is going to play out. And he begins to speak of the resurrection 
of Christ. And that's when people begin to mock. They don't like the idea of the resurrection. But then some joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The last thing to note here is that the Apostle Paul clearly declared the message of the gospel and the implications for all men. So here's the, the final point here. Those who might think, fancy themselves sophisticated philosophers, those who believe that they have a very airtight worldview that's based upon uh, naturalistic evolution, for example, um, arguing from the standpoint of philosophy has no power to save their soul. And it's not a fulfillment of gospel commission. The Apostle Paul gave us this example, that there he is in the the seat of intellectualism, of philosophy, of of really civilized life. He's there in the seat of it with those who would scorn him and ridicule him and look down on him, and he still presents a very clear gospel presentation about the Christ and his resurrection. Now, Understanding that those who would not be compelled by the Spirit to have their eyes open to believe this truth, you get to that point, and that's where ridicule will really ensue. Because after all, there's no such thing as a resurrection, right? But that didn't stop the Apostle Paul. It is about the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation to those who believe. Well, that's all I have. Any, any questions or comments before we close in prayer? Thanks for kind of walking with me through this. I just trust that we'll use this text and this example to really be effective in our, our gospel witness and recognize that we stand on solid ground with the Christian worldview. We don't need to be apologetic or shy away from clarity in that. It's amazing. Sorry. Oh, I was having a conversation with a fellow one time about you know objective truth or whatever. He said, well, you know, you can have your opinion, I can have mine, that's what's great, because there's no such thing as right or wrong. And I stopped, and I said, well, you certainly don't expect me to agree to that. He said, why not? I said, how could that be right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's checkmate in one move. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that you just recognize that there's, no, there's nowhere for them to go. You can't make objective statements of truth by saying there's no such thing as objective truth. Or as Rabbi Zacharias would say, you know, you know, they'll tell you, that, like the postmodernist, you can't know anything totally and for sure. Except he that. Says, he says, are you sure about that? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, it is, it is interesting to think about Epicurean and Stoic stuff and how, how much it has infiltrated our culture as well. I was going to ask, too, about um, uh, maybe just tips or, or um, uh, you know, as far as engaging our culture, who has a mix of Mm-hmm. Somewhere, um, mm-hmm. you know, our you know in Paul's time, did the folks he was talking to have, um, you know, obviously they had a pagan background that was more oriented towards some, uh, you know, multiple deities and things like that. Now, you know, the people were evangelizing, though they may adhere to these philosophies, which are illogical at some point. What uh, they, the folks we we're talking to now, they have some idea of. The Old Testament, Jewish history, and things like that. Did the folks Paul was talking to? Did they know about the God of the Old Testament at all? Have they? I, some, 
possibly did. I mean, there was certainly a synagogue there in Athens, but I would say, you know, it's probably like, um, you know, any other large city or community, you've got a range there. I would say the vast majority, you know, they may they may have had some um, sort of community or cultural knowledge of this Jewish community and this Jewish sect, but they may not have understood what it meant. I mean, you've got people with you know who, who would adhere to a particular denomination or a particular you know Christian entity and not even know what they're supposed to believe. You know, so I would say that if you remove it another step, there was a great deal of of ignorance uh, of that. Sometimes the hurdle seems to be and nowadays, you know, I've been there, I've done that, I've, I grew up in the church, I've heard that argument, I don't believe it. Um, you know, how do we engage folks like that? Um, do we, you know, just thoughts on that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, I mean, there's certainly limits to you know what you can do. I mean, some of this, some of this, you have to resign yourself to knowing you got, there's some discernment that has to be in play in terms of what your what the relationship dynamic, how the relationship dynamic is developing in those moments. Um, and you certainly have to be discerning to the fact that that it's it's the Lord that opens the heart and opens the eyes to see. And so, um, if I, I I always think that you get into those situations and it's always an opportunity for us to check ourselves first, because the fact of the matter is is that on one hand, we should have a passion for the souls of men and women, and so we should be driven by that to some degree to, you know, if we could, just drag them into the kingdom. I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's, there's an appropriate, I think, uh, a sense of intensity and fervor that you would have there. However, I also know that we are naturally inclined toward pride, and we want to win an argument. And we want, we want people to agree with our particular position. And so we have to really, I think check our own hearts in those moments because it's, it's really about the gospel and it's about the glory of God and it's about the truth. And so I would say that if you get in those moments and you feel like that you've conveyed the truth to the extent that you can, then you might have to just find another moment and come back for round two and appeal again because you don't know what the Lord is doing in that heart. But I know what you mean by the fact that there are those that feel like that they've you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and you know, it didn't work for me. And I, I think that one, if you just kind of think of it from a principled standpoint, um, we have to be able to articulate out of a life that carries a, a weight of knowledge and intimacy of the Savior. So that, the, just like I gave that example of John Lennox, just the sheer, his sheer presence and the way that he communicated, there was no question, I think, on most people's minds that... This guy, this guy had something going on there that was substantive. It was, it was real in some meaningful way, at least to him, that was compelling. And so we want that also to come through, not just that we've figured out some new argumentation angle that you know, draws, them, draws their interest back in. So I just think that you have to kind of, I don't know, mix all that into the to water and, and just trust the Lord ultimately to, to do that work, but... They need, they, they, they need to be able to see that I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about trying something. I'm talking about a risen Savior who, apart from him, I mean, I, I'm talking about truth and life and eternity. And, and um, so being able to communicate that from the standpoint of not some option that's out there among a thousand other options.
we're talking about this is truth and life and reality, um, and it's coming out of a heart and, a, and from a voice that's authentic and genuine who knows the Savior. And trust the Lord that maybe he'll use that. So, I mean, we could talk specifics and maybe come up with different strategies for argumentation, but that might require a little more specific, you know, dialogue. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just being prepared like Paul was prepared. Some believed. Some wanted to hear more. Some ridiculed and rejected. Some became violent. So if it's any one of those, they're all possible. You know, I mean, they're all they're all in the in the spectrum of possible responses. Yes. I was just going to say Nicholas Ellen was saying that at the counseling conference last month that we have to realize what people need is truth, and so we speak the truth in love because we know that's what they need. They need the gospel, and we don't worry about the results, and we speak the truth because that's what God's commanded us to do, and it's. If they accept it, it's not because we did anything great. If they don't, it's not because we did anything wrong, necessarily. And just like you were saying, the results are in the Lord's hands. Yeah. We just are called to speak the truth in love. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the sowing of seed is another good you know, thing to think about. That, I mean, you just may be a part of a whole big process that's way bigger than you and above you. And, you know, they, they may not have responded in a way that gives you a sense of their belief and acceptance, but who knows what the Lord, how the Lord will use that to build upon something else that, you know, so it's about, it's about faithfulness in the process and just being faithful to the truth and all that, yeah. Doesn't Shane's testimony that a guy shared with him and like he kind of rejected it until later? Yeah. All right, we better pray and be dismissed. (laughs)